don't know if you've uh, been in, in church that celebrates Advent before, but uh, growing up for me, Advent was about looking forward to the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the incarnation. So looking forward to Christmas. And very much for me growing up, it was about looking forward to Christmas morning and presents, right? That was uh, kind of central to my uh, Christmas experience more than I wish it were. But, uh, but Advent is this part of the church calendar that focuses on the coming, the advent, the arrival of Jesus. And most often in the church, in my experience, it's been about the coming, the first coming, the incarnation. The series that we're going to be doing over this year during Advent is through the book of Revelation, which is focused on his second coming, the second advent of, of Jesus. And I, I think those two things are tied very closely together. Ho- hopefully by understanding the second coming more, we understand the first coming and vice versa. And so we see this picture of this vision of Jesus both about his coming, and we'll see more of that as we get farther into the book of Revelation, but also we, we see him now as he reigns and rules, sitting at the right hand of the Father now in heaven. And, and these pictures, I think, engage us in uh, hopefully ways of, of great hope. As we wait, as we wait to celebrate Christmas, we'll have the Christmas season after here, as we wait in the mess, so this is part of the liturgical art, is uh, it's... it's by nature, uh, by design, messy, and it will be brought together uh, as we move uh, to Christmas. Um, I was also informed that part of the, the mess of the liturgical art was the very much the plan, uh, some of the sewer issues and the smells that come with that. Um, it, you know, so that we have broken mirrors and all this. It, it's a recognition of the, of the waiting and waiting for something uh, different. We don't wait well, though. We, we, we hopefully will be invited uh, in Advent to wait expectantly, to wait actively, to think about our, our waiting. We could talk on and on about our culture and how it creates a desire to wait less and less. We have fast food. We can get things delivered often now same day. Uh, we, can, we don't have to wait to get a hold of somebody. We text them or call them and expect an immediate response. We, we, can, we don't have to wait on information. We can pull out our phones and Google it. We, you know, we, we are more and more struggling to wait. But this is not a new phenomenon. It's happened all of human history. We don't wait well. Uh, Abraham didn't wait well for the promises of God, so he took matters into his own hand with his uh, maidservant. Moses didn't wait well for God and his justice, so he took matters into his own hands and uh, killed the Egyptian. Uh, The Israelites didn't wait well when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. They couldn't wait for him to meet with God, so they created an idol a golden calf to worship, we don't wait well. And, uh, and so there's a call and a challenge to actually do just that, to, to wait, uh, to wait expectantly, to wait thoughtfully. And, and the prayer is that we find that here as we wait for both the celebration of the first advent, the incarnation of Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and as we also wait for his second coming when he makes all things right. And we will get to Revelation 21, this beautiful picture of him making all things right, but this is moving in that direction. And from this passage, we're going to see three points. We're waiting for, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for something better. We're waiting for someone better, and we're waiting for somewhere better. Something better, someone better. 
somewhere better. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word that we might wait well for you. We pray that you would work this in our hearts, that we might be changed, that we might find the hope that comes in your coming, both your coming 2,000 years ago and the coming that is yet to be that we look forward to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're waiting for something better. The, The very idea of waiting recognizes that there's something that's not here now, that we want to be here, or we want things to be different or better or more. And so there is this recognition in life that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And we could all give lists about the way that life is not the way that it's supposed to be. We sit in this moment of recognizing that things are broken. And, and John certainly does that. John is the author here of the book of Revelation. He's the one that receives the vision. He is one of the 12 apostles, and he's been through it. I mean, he's, he's, he's old at this point. Uh, this was likely written around 90, so he's, uh, he's, he's up there in years. He might be in his 80s or 90s, and, uh, and he is exiled to the island of Patmos. And that's because he's preached the gospel. Uh, church history tells us even that, that uh, he's no stranger to persecution. It's quite possible that they attempted to boil him alive in oil, and he miraculously escaped that. But we at least know that all of the other disciples were actually killed for preaching the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, and the work that he did. So John is no stranger to tribulation in, in, in ways well beyond what we might expect uh, our own, ourselves to experience. So that when he says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, the recognition that there's need for patient endurance because things are not the way that they're supposed to be, um, he recognizes, he writes this in the midst of mess, in the midst of things not being like they're supposed to be. So he's imprisoned on this island. It's not, a, it's not the kind of island that you want to be stuck on. Uh, and and th- this is essentially prison for him. And so it's in this moment that he has the vision. He is on Patmos, but then in verse 10 we see, I was in the Spirit. The, the Spirit comes upon him to give him this vision. But it comes in the midst of this full recognition that things are an absolute mess. And, he, and, he, and he's writing, and we see this picture of God working this vision for the churches. So chapters 2 and 3 Uh, are these letters to the churches. The seven churches are representative. The the churches that are listed there in verse 11 are the churches that represent the whole of the church around the world at that time and then throughout history now. So there's a picture of this being for the church for the rest of history. And the churches are a mess themselves. So it's not like, okay, it's a mess out there and the church is has got it all right. Like these letters that are going to the churches in chapters two and three, they say the church is a mess and you guys got to get your stuff together. There's sin and brokenness in the church and there's sin and there's brokenness around. And in the midst of that, God is working and there is hope to be had. That's what we we find here. But he does not skim over the reality of the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And, And we, we, sometimes need reminders that maybe particularly in this time of, of Advent, of Christmas season, I mean, we all know that it's the most wonderful time of the year. We 
sing it, right? Uh, and, and, and maybe for some of us, that, that is the experience. We really love Christmas and all the celebrations that, that come around Christmas. And we, we talk about, we love Christmas Eve service and having, uh, as a reminder, Christmas Eve service, everybody's invited to our house afterwards. Uh, it's a great time of celebration. We really do enjoy this time of year. But it's also true that this time of year brings a lot of recognition that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be because it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And so then that gap is all the more evident in our lives and our emotions and our experience and all the things that, that we have going on. So that this is, for many of us, a time of real struggle because things are supposed to be full of joy uh, and celebration and, and yet they're often not. So, you know, we can sing songs about the most wonderful time of year, but I, I'm going to quote a little bit from uh, a song that I quoted from actually last Advent, but it's become one of my favorite Christmas songs. An artist named Jess Ray, she sings a song called Gloria, Gloria. And it talks about another trip around the sun, so we've done another year. Wish it would have been a better one. Here we are, painfully aware that it's hard to hope, easy to despair. Um, as the year closes, we begin again. Let's take comfort in God has come to us, that he's come into our presence. Were you forgotten? Were you betrayed? Are you alone? He knows the ache. Have you been waiting? Tired and confused. Goes on to say, it's okay if you need to admit that this season lost some of its magic. It reminds you of all your hurt and loss of how you're crying out for the kingdom to come. There, there is this, in the midst of that, Jesus has come to us. That's the incarnation. And that there is this promise of him coming again. But it comes in the midst of that mess, of the things not being as they should be. So we're waiting for something different, something better, at least something more. He says in verse 10, because he's about to have this, he's describing the vision that he is having. He says, I was in the spirit, verse 10. The spirit of, is, is, brings this vision to him. And this long series of the vision, this book of Revelation, it is the revelation given to John about the things that are to come. About, it's, it's a typical book of prophecy, classic prophecy. Here are things that are to come. And here are, prophecy also very much includes that here are the problems that need to be addressed. So these letters to the churches here are the problems that you have. This is very much a book of prophecy, and particularly prophecy about the end of uh, the end of all of the ages, when again Jesus returns and makes all things right. And this vision comes with great hope, as he is in the spirit. There, there's a, a phrase that uh, he's in Patmos. So in Patmos we suffer. In Numati, that is the spirit, we reign. This, this old phrase that is, uh, has been used in the church. And, and I, I would think maybe it's in, in the spirit, in numity, we, we hope or we look forward or we wait. But it's we reign because there's this picture that we're about to see of Jesus, the son of man, reigning and ruling. Because ultimately, as we sit in the waiting and the longing, as we embrace it, as we recognize that it's real and true, we are longing for someone better. So it's not just the, the, the longing for something better is recognizing that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, but we're now longing for someone better. And this is the picture that we have of Jesus. And, and maybe at times we're longing for someone better than even the story of the incarnation that happened 2,000 years ago because Jesus in all of his 
meekness and humility, it feels like it's not enough. We look around at the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and we want somebody to just barrel through and fix it all, right? With power. That was what the disciples wanted. We talk about this regularly, that, that the disciples, they wanted Jesus to come through with power to destroy Rome and to take over militarily. That was what they were looking for. And that's not what Jesus gave us at that time, right? He gave us humility and meekness in the ordinary, walking and eating with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. And he was just a humble servant of the Lord to the point where he died this shameful death on the cross. That, wait, that's not the picture that we want. And, and we're reminded here that it is, that is absolutely real and true, but it is, there's something else about who he is as well. And so here we see this vision. We get the words of this vision. And, and the whole book of Revelation is this invitation into these symbolic visions that give us a picture that engages our imagination in a way that we often desperately need. This is my invitation to you as we go through Revelation over these next four weeks, maybe a little bit longer than that, is that you would allow it to engage your imagination. Because there's some really awesome stuff here. And so to be clear, we're not using this. We're not coming to the book of Revelation and finding it as some Bible code that we're able to decipher when he's going to return and who the bear is and the bee. Like that, that, that's actually really not helpful. G.K. Chesterton, uh, now a, about 100 years ago, uh, English philosopher, Christian apologist, uh, thinker, he, he said this um, about... Um, about the book of Revelation and, and John, he says that, um, let's see, he says, G.K. Chesterton once remarked that though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And, and you might have come across some of those uh, commentaries or uh, ways to understand Revelation. And there, there are things to think about and try to understand. We're going to have a lot of questions. I mean, we could talk about how we, view things, uh, how I uh, view things is from a, uh, an idealist perspective, an amillennial perspective, uh, you know, not believing in the rapture a la um, Left Behind series, those kind of things. If you want to talk about those things, you know, let's talk about those things. They, they do matter. But the, the invitation here is to engage our imagination with who Jesus is. That's someone better that we long for. And that's exactly what starts here, this first of seven visions of Jesus that we find here in verses 12 through 20. He is, we first see the lampstands. We're going to get to those again because they're, they're referred to again in verse 20. But after the lampstands, he sees in the middle of the lampstands this vision. There's no question here that this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who came as a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. There's a picture of him here very differently. It's a very different picture. It is him in glory. And I turned to see the voice speaking to me. That, that just, let me say that real quick. That, that he's seeing, the, he turns to see the voice. This is the engagement of our imagination. There's the picture of the, the sights that are seen, the roaring water that we'll get to in a, in a moment. The, the, in, the imagination is engaged in really powerful ways in the visions that we find in Revelation. There's an invitation here to use your artistic mind to engage who, who Jesus is here. And it's beautiful to see and to hear as he does in verse 12. 
So he sees, verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and golden sash around his chest. The first thing that, that the original hearers would have heard is the Son of Man, and they would have had a very clear context and understanding for the Son of Man. Two, two places we see this uh, a great deal in Scripture. One is Daniel, which is an Old Testament book of prophecy about the end with these also glorious visions about what is to come. And the Son of Man is described as this great, mighty, powerful warrior that is going to bring about the end and, and ultimate justice and all things made right and all of the other kingdoms are going to fall and his ultimate kingdom will stand forever. That's the promise from thousands of years ago in the book of Daniel. So that was in people's mind when Jesus' favorite self-reference was the Son of Man. He, he loved to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And there's, there's a sense in which many people experience that as, as an, uh, an incongruity within that. It didn't fit. He was, again, this humble guy walking, uh, just doing ordinary life. He, was, uh, he died on the cross. That didn't fit with their picture of the Son of Man. I think there's something really important to Jesus living out his life in that way that is a model for us. There's, there are many parts about the way that God operates that he calls us to imitate. But there are parts that we cannot imitate, and that's the picture that we get here, the glorious picture of the Son of Man, the glorious picture of him reigning and ruling. And it is a reminder that as we sing the song, what child is this? The one who was born in the manger? It was this guy, this guy who was reigning and ruling and holding the stars in his right hand, ready to use the cosmos for his purposes. That is the child that was born 2,000 years ago. That is the one who is coming back to give us ultimate hope. And so we see a picture of who he is here. He's wearing a robe, which is this kingly picture. He has the sash that is a picture of him being the priest. There was clear ways that they would have understood these things. It's his, they're, they're indicate, these aren't just like random things that he's wearing. Just the other day, I was on the sidewalk, and uh, Chris Williams drives up. Uh, so he's in a very particular car, and he's wearing a very particular um, costume. As his, uh, I'll just I say that because one of his daughters calls it that. So Chris is a police officer, and uh, when he is driving away from his house and by my house, uh, by my house, and he stops, and he has on his full uniform with lots of gear, I, I know where he's headed. I, I know both what he does. It's, it's evidently clear from what he's wearing, right? And I actually know where he's headed and what he's, he's probably not going to the grocery store or going to a movie. He's going to, to work as a police officer and that's all very clear because of what he's wearing. So some of us, our, our jobs are that way. Uh, some of us, not so much. But there, there was a very clear picture and what Jesus is wearing here is telling us something about him. The robe is this kingly picture, the, the royal picture of him reigning and ruling. The, the, the sash is the picture of the priests, that he is the bridge between God and man. He is fixing that gap, what is, what is broken there. That was why he came to this earth to, to be one of us, to die for us. And it's all the work that he's doing. The one who is perfectly right and good and pure. So we see the picture of his hair is white like wool, white as the snow. He is pure and he is wise and then he is not only pure himself he is purifying because his eyes are like the flames of fire again 
imagination, right? Like we don't know anybody with flaming eyes, right? This is this vision of who he is, the, the refining fire that purifies us that purifies you and me, that brings his purity to us. That's what he does in his death on the cross is that he brings his purity to bear on us. He's not made unclean by touching us. When he touches lepers, they don't make him unclean. He makes them clean and he does this for us. He is pure and he purifies us. And then we see the picture of his feet. They are like burnished bronze. Verse 15, burnished bronze refined in a furnace. They are they are strong, and this actually also goes back to the picture of the kingdoms and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel, and those kingdoms would fall apart. But Jesus' feet are strong and sturdy, and they last. They are a strong foundation. He is powerful. And then he holds the stars in his right hand. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. As he holds them in his right hand, he's, he's ready to wield them, to use them. When people are demonstrated holding something in their right hand, they're ready to use it. He is ready to use the whole of the cosmos. There's also this connection to the churches. He's able to use them for his purposes to do what he has come to do. He is powerful beyond what we could imagine, the power to use the very cosmos itself. And then he speaks. And his voice is like roaring waters. I love this picture, roaring. I mean, you think about the way that we say things matters, right? I mean, it's, it's tone or volume. We're just having a conversation this week about uh, some multiple people who are low talkers. And you, you can't actually even oftentimes understand what they're saying because they're such low talkers. Uh, but even if you can, it doesn't come with any force or, or power, right? Or, or just think about... You know, if I were to go to, to Ben and say, nice shirt, it's very different, very different than, hey, nice shirt. Like, same thing, said it a different way, it matters, right? So here's this picture of his voice, like roaring waters. And I think about one of the first things I did on my sabbatical was some hiking, and there was uh, water on the coast of Minnesota, these streams, there had been an unusual amount of snow, and this stream became this, I mean, I, you, you knew that if somebody went in, it, it, would, it would have been over. I have not seen water so powerful and so loud. I mean, it was a force. And maybe you've been somewhere where you've seen something like that. I think that's the picture that we have here. He speaks with the force of roaring waters. It comes with authority and power. That one who is, has the robe, that one, again, he's engaging, John here is engaging our imagination to picture who the son of man is, who Jesus is, who that child is from 2,000 years ago. And he speaks his word. And in the word, again, this theme that comes from creation, he creates the world, Genesis 1, with his word. He, he, he gives guidance by his word all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He gives, he sustains the, the world by his word. He comes as the word, John tells us, who also wrote the book of John, that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. The word is really important and powerful and it speaks and it reveals who God is. And in that speaking, that two-edged sword that is also the word that lays us bare, that, that purifies us, 
His face is shining like the sun. And this is, again, that imagination of glory. We, we long for a sun, the sun to come and shine light on, to bring truth, to bring the power of the sun to bear in this world. We, we need that light. And light is regularly referred to as who Jesus is coming into this world. Our, our confession this week and, and for Advent is from Isaiah chapter 9, that a light is shown in darkness. Jesus is that light who is shown, and he will come one day to shine all the more powerfully, and he will remove all darkness. That's the picture that is, is coming at the end of Revelation, where he will walk among us as the sun. I was talking just yesterday, I had some uh, kids asking me about pranks that happened in, uh, in college and pranks that we, we pulled. And one of them was that we crawled into these friends' basement. You crawl into their crawl spaces. It's not safe for them to have their house set up this way. Uh, but we, we crawled in from outside, and you could drop down into the basement. And a friend of mine and I, we crawled in there, and we, they, were in their, they were in their house watching TV. And so we unscrewed the fuse. It was an old house, so it was actually a fuse that you unscrew. And so the TV goes out, and you, you know, they got to go uh, investigate and figure out what's going on. And so they come down the steps, and they... They turn on the light. We realized afterwards, we should have also unscrewed the light bulb so that when they came down to, to fix the fuse, that they would have done the light and not been able to see anything. It would have been much more terrifying. As it, as, as it was, it was enough. They couldn't see us hiding back up in the crawl space. And then we began to make a little bit of noise, and we did it again, and we did unscrew the light bulb, but it turned out by that time, we had already freaked them out, and they had run out of the house. <laughs> Because we're like, okay, finally, we're going to run up and we're going to yell. And they were gone. They, they got around the corner and they saw my car parked around the corner and they figured out what was going on. But, um, but that idea of going into the basement and thinking something might be going on and not having any light is terrifying. We long for that light. And that's the picture that we get regularly of who Jesus is shining his light. But here, it's even more powerful than normal. He is shining as bright as the sun. If you've ever looked at the sun... You'd be blind if you did it for long, right? It's really, really powerful. So that's this picture of who he is. So much so that the result for John is that he falls down as though dead. And this is a literally breathtaking moment for him, awe-inspiring moment for him. I mean, he is fully engaged in this vision, and he is inviting us to be so as well. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that power, in the midst of that glory... He has come and he touches him. He lays his hand on him and he says, fear not. Fear not. He's got power. He goes on to talk about having power over death itself. So that he is able to bring hope in the midst of this broken world. So we sit in the midst of mess and we sit in the midst of real mess in our lives. And he's saying, I'm bringing hope. And I've got power over all of the mess and ultimately over death itself. And and I'm here and I'm coming again. There's an invitation for us to engage in that beautiful picture of who he is and ourselves to to find hope there, to, to wait for the ultimate coming of this, that we would find ourselves in Patmos. We suffer to recognize that we have brokenness, that we do suffer in in different ways. But in the spirit, which the spirit is offered to us, not to experience this particular vision as he did, but to to see it 
and to allow it to engage our imagination. We have the Spirit, and in the Spirit we reign. And we have hope. And that this is actually a promise for us. I stretched a little bit on this last point. We long for somewhere better. Here's what I want to say here, is that, that we're invited to here and now experience some of this. Not only the engagement of our imagination, but to allow that to affect our lives. Even in the brokenness, that we're invited to fear not. This, this is also, this was the word of the Lord to him, to John, as he had the vision, but it's also his, his word to us. And it's reminiscent of other appearances of uh, God himself or angels where they have to say, fear not. Even that great birth story where the angels appear to the shepherds out in the field and it's, it's awe-inspiring and, and they're fearful. And they're told to, to fear not because they bring good news of great joy, of peace, and of hope and of the child that is to be born of the first advent. That is truth for us. But it plays out, and here's the other thing that we see, is it plays out somewhere in particular. It plays out in the churches. It's for the people of God. Hasn't been that long ago since we looked at the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the people of God together, that God works, and we talked about and acknowledged it's a mess. The lampstands matter here. The lampstands are who God has been given to, the churches God has been given to. And again, the churches are a mess. It's not, the churches have all the hope, they're getting it right, the churches got it right. But there's hope for us, even here at Fountain Square Press, that, that even in the midst of our mess, that we can experience Jesus and his presence and his glory and this, have our imaginations engaged here. That he is the one working. It's not, it's not us. It's not our ability. It is him and his coming in the first advent and in the second advent. So that as we wait, we're reminded that we're not in control. But that he is. He is that king. And all of his glory, shining like the sun, wielding the cosmos for us and for our good that we might encounter him. That, that is my prayer for, for me and for you this Advent season, that we wait and we encounter him and his work. Let's pray.